Hey, well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever it is that you're watching this. So glad uh, that you're tuning in uh, to Grace Church Norton. My name is Aiden, one of the pastors here, and so glad that you're with us uh, today. You know, we all have those situations in life where something happens, or we take kind of a look at ourselves, and we're like, all right, from this point on, we got to change some stuff, right? Like, we got to do things differently because this is not going well, right? Sometimes that's like getting towards the end of the winter. You're like, I can't eat this many gummy bears. Things got to change now, right? Not, not that that's overly specific to myself, but I was thinking about this uh, one time when my friends and I, we were in a late high school, college. We played in a band, and you'll never know if they were good, if we were good or not, because it doesn't exist anymore. We played this band, and a lot of our friends played in these heavy bands that screamed and played heavy music, and we were in this like pop band that everybody's little sister liked. And we uh, would play different shows, and really early on, we, did, we were trying to figure out how to do things. And so we had a friend who played in one of these heavy bands who was like, guys, he, he lived in about an hour south of here. He's like, everyone at my school loves you guys. You guys should come play our prom. I'm on the prom committee. You guys should come. Everybody loves, loves you guys. And we're like, well, that's crazy. Your whole school loves us? He's like, whole school loves you guys. We're like, wow, that's fortuitous. And so we were invited by him to play their prom. Now, as you'd think, like prom's a big deal, right? Like prom, everybody gets, spends money and gets dressed up. And for seniors and stuff, it's like the end of the, your, your high school career. It's a big deal. And so we get there. We're like in late high school to the school where we know nobody except our one friend, who, to be honest, we really don't know that well. We're just taking his word for it. So we show up and we set up at this prom, and the whole time everyone's kind of looking at us like, who's, who's this, right? And so we're there, and we go to play our first song at this prom. They played some songs, you know, from whatever was big in 2009. And we go to play the first song, and it's almost like we instantly became the song where everybody went to the bathroom. Like, they just looked at us, and they had no idea who we were. They had no idea what songs we played. And they all just kind of went to the bathroom. So we played three separate times that night, three different songs. Went out there, first time, and everyone kind of like tried the dance and just went to the bathroom, you know, got a snack. Came back, we came out again, same kind of thing as best as I can remember it. And I remember the last time we went out to play, there was that dude who went to every high school. He was probably like the lineman of the football team. Big dude, end of prom night, he's got just like his undershirt on, his tie tied around his head type of situation. And I so vividly remember this guy looking at me and going, are you guys playing another song? And I'm like, yeah. And he just looks at me and so, so sad. Like I shot his dog. He just goes, okay. And he just left. And I remember thinking, I remember us packing up our trailer to leave that prom we played. I remember thinking, never again. From this point on, from here on out, I am not just taking the word of some guy that I barely know saying that the whole school loves us when really he was the only one who loved us, right? From here on out, we got to change the way we're doing things, right? We got to do this different. We are wrapping up a series today that we've been walking through for about the last month and a half called Next. And what we have been looking at is these last two years have been a necessary disruption. There's been so much pain that's come through all this, so much confusion, so much distraction. Some of you have lost family members. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have lost friends. Some of you have lost sense of normalcy and all this kind of stuff. And for some of you, you're asking questions that you've never asked before. For others of you, have talked to some of you, you are closer to Jesus through this disruption than you ever have been. For some of you, in the midst of it all, and this may be you, that you've drifted in the mix of all this, of all this upheaval, of all this change, you've kind of drifted 
and maybe maybe have grabbed onto things that had more immediate answers to the ways that you are feeling. There's been no shortage of this mix-up in the midst of all this. And as we kind of head into this next season, what we want to do through this series is take kind of stock, take inventory. What are the things that we need to leave behind? What are the things that we kind of need to take with us and refine? What are the things that we need to change in order to go where Jesus is leading? Not so that we can just figure out how to live a happier, healthy life, but this disruption should point us towards Jesus. We want to ask ourselves, Jesus, what are things that have been tying us down, been distracting us? What do we need to change in order to come out of this season following you more intimately? To almost looking at our lives in the same way that we moved on from that show. We're like, all right, from here on out, this is how we're doing this. Almost looking at ourselves, looking at our following, our walk with Jesus and saying, from here on out, this is what this needs to look like. Because you and I both know that it is so easy to be distracted to get preoccupied, to get caught in the flow, to get comfortable, and sometimes just get lazy. You know, as humans, we are prone to take the path of least resistance, right? Like, we are prone to take the easiest path. For some of us, I know there's certain things that we kind of double down on and we we do, but it requires effort, requires work, right? Some of us, it's just easy to take the path of least resistance. For the sake of today, for the sake of today, we're going to unpack something quick, and then we're going to jump into the Word and see kind of how this contrasts with what Jesus calls us to. But for the sake of today, we refer to this as sitting. Refer to this idea of spiritual sitting, kind of our, the, our passive waiting, right? The kind of path of least resistance that we take, kind of passive waiting that has little bearing, little to no bearing on the kingdom or the things of God. And we all can find ourselves in these situations of spiritual sitting. And I think it shows up in different ways. I think sometimes this, this kind of spiritual sitting around can, can show up where we have like this, almost this phantom in the future, right? This almost idea of ourselves that one day we're going to have certain things together. Like one day I'm going to memorize the book of Leviticus. One day I'm going to be this spiritual ninja and people are going to come to me and I'm kind of going to give them the word. Like one day I look real great. You know, like right now, I know it's a little rough. We're kind of trying to figure things out. But, you know, next year when I kind of read these couple books or next year when I get back into the rhythm or after I get through this season, right, there's this idea of us in the future that is idealistic. And, and we, what happens is we get content with today, pushing things aside, being like, well, I'll, I'll change that next week, next month, next year. And we, we have this phantom of ourselves in the future who's got it all together. And so what happens is it requires us to kind of just sit around in the here and the now. I think sometimes we end up spiritually sitting around where some of us become information gluttons. We become kind of the storehouses of information that we want to listen to more sermons. We want to just podcast all day. We want to read these commentaries. We're in such an interesting age where we can have access to so many things. You can go online and you can have access to really high-definition versions of original original manuscripts of the scriptures. We can like zoom in in the original Greek and the original documents and stuff. Like it's crazy. We saturate ourselves with books and with conferences, with studies and all these things to fill our hearts and fill our minds. And they're not bad things. Many of these things aren't bad things. But we can sit and we can fill ourselves up with information. Or we know more about how the end times are going to play out. Or we know more about why every single other preacher, other speaker of denomination is wrong about something. And all the problems with every single celebrity pastor. All the problems with this and that. We can have all that stuff nailed down. 
But what happens is we can have more information in our minds, but they don't always translate to the very simple, practical things that Jesus has actually called us to do. We can, we can major on the minor so much that we can end up spiritually sitting and being gluttons of information that doesn't actually change us. Or sometimes I think the way that we can kind of spiritually sit is that we become abstract believers. And, and this is what I mean. I want to walk this fine line. Sometimes we can pray a prayer and we can simply mentally adhere to some theological beliefs, but it has no bearing on our life. It has no bearing on our heart. It has no bearing on our attitude. It has no bearing on the way we see people, on our convictions. We just know that we mentally agree with a set of theological beliefs. James would call this that we are hearers of the word but not doers. In our culture, when we talk about belief, it's almost like, do you believe this is real? Like, it's like, yes, that's real, right? I believe in ghosts. I believe in goblins. I believe in soulmates. I believe in Jesus. These are all things that you believe are real. It's kind of what we boil belief down to. And it can become this abstract thing. Where scripturally, this idea of belief, like belief that we see in John 3.16, means to cling to something, to adhere to it, to rely on, to trust in it. Not just in the then and there, but the here and now. So we become, we kind of agree with certain theological things mentally, which say, oh, yep, I agree, check, I'm good. And so that means I can just sit and do what I want, complain about what I want, have the opinions about what I want, because I'm good, I've mentally agreed with the right things. And I love this, John Tyson, he says this. He says, Christians are the only ones who have a belief about Jesus being Lord and are content to make him the Lord of our subjective, eternal experience. He says, we have to commit that our faith will not be privatized, but will affect the arts and economics, education, how children are raised, how marriages are viewed, how you view your sexuality, and how you use your leisure time. He says, Jesus is Lord or he is nothing. I love that. Too often we get comfortably spiritually sitting and being fine with agreeing to things in our minds. Now, why do I start with this today? Why is this, matter? Why is this important? Because what we're going to look at today And what we look at as we go into this next season, as we go on from here, is that Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we are here as followers of Jesus. If you are somebody who has been made new in Christ, we don't just check, yes, I get to go to heaven when I die, but we are here for a purpose and the world is in desperate need of the life that Jesus offers. And so today we are going to just take a simple very simple, practical look at the way in which Jesus calls us to live while we are here in this world. We have been looking at the book of John, chapter, chapters 13 through 17, where Jesus is having this last conversation with his disciples before he would go to be crucified, buried, raised again, and make all things new in this, in this picture of the gospel. That he walked with these disciples for three years that he taught them, that he led them, that he showed them what the kingdom looks like. He preached the message of the kingdom and now he's going to go to die. And everything in this conversation is right on the edge of what is to come next. And what we're going to look at today is the last part of a prayer that Jesus prays. This is the end of a prayer that Jesus is praying. And in the context of a prayer, he says a couple things. And literally after he says amen, the next thing that happens is he is arrested and it is now on. This is the end of the conversation, which I think is worth looking at. We're not going to look at the entire thing today. He says so much in here about his disciples, and then he prays for us as believers. He prays for the church. He talks about things such as unity and the promises that where he wants his people to be. 
But we'll throw this up there. We'll read a couple verses here, 15 through 19. And then the last thing he says is verse 26. He says this, my prayer is not, this is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He doesn't want, he's not like, let's just get them out of here. He, he wants to be with them, but he's like, my prayer is not that you just get them out of here, but you would protect them as they are here. Not, not from accidents, not from the realities of life, but from the influence and the impact of the evil one, from Satan and his lies. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Sanctify is to set them apart by your truth. He says, your word is truth. Then look what he says, verse 18. This is where we're camping out today. As you sent me into the world, Jesus was sent into the world for a specific mission. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He's talking about the disciples and therefore us. For them, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart that they true that they too may be truly sanctified, set apart. Then we jump to verse 26. This is the last thing Jesus says in this prayer. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. He says, I have made you known, mission completed, but I will continue to make myself known through them. For the sake of today, you can write down this way. This is the sermon in a sentence is that sending must replace sitting. Sending must replace sitting. We're going to unpack this sending and what we are called to do. But it has to replace our passive sitting. It has to replace us being fine with mentally assenting to things, with being filled with information, to simply being entertained, to having some idealistic future that's there and then, but not here and now. That we have to see ourselves in the world differently. I want you to think about this for a second. If you are watching and you believe in God, you are a follower of Jesus, you could pause this for a second and think about it. How, what is the primary way that God works in the world? Like we pray for things, God, would you, we ask you for this. God, would you show up in this way? God, how, how does that play out? Think about that for a second. Is it, is it man, does God, does he reveals things in dreams. And so we have dreams and that's where God tells us what to do or Man, maybe the, the primary way that God works in the world is he gives us these messages and creation in the sky. And, and so we got we to gotta look out for signs. Maybe, I don't know. It's angels, right? That's how he speaks to us. He sends angels and angels show up and they got a message for you, Pastor Aiden. Is that how he does it? We see that in the Bible. Is that how he, it's through angels? I would, I would, I would encourage you to check me on this. That though, though we see in scripture, God, work, God works through a lot of different ways. He speaks through a donkey, right? Like God can do, can communicate to us and work in whatever way he wants. But the primary way in which God, who's the creator of the world, the primary way that he has chosen to, to work in the world is through a partnership with people. We see this all through the Old Testament. We see that God's, God's way of working is partnering with us messed up humans. That that's how he has chosen to do it. Think about some simple things. That God's spirit, that when Jesus came onto the scene, he could have popped up out of the ground, could have, he ascended by floating up into the sky, he could have just floated down and, whoo, let's do this, right? But the way in which God chose to work in the world, that God's spirit was united with a teenage girl named Mary. And we see the birth of Christ. There's God working with humans. We see, as we hold the scripture in our hands, that it is God's spirit 
that has worked in, in the lives, in the stories of human authors, of kings, of peasants, of men and women, that God's spirit has come to work with the authors of scripture. They didn't go into some trance and write out the Bible, but the spirit worked with them that we now have the scriptures, God's spirit plus the authors. We think about the idea of the church, the church that us broken, messed up followers of Jesus, that God's spirit has come dwell inside of us and it's God's spirit in conjunction with us in our normal lives. That is the way that the church is built. That is the way that God has chosen to work in the world. I want you think about your own story. I want you think about your own story. How did you come to know Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus? What were the moments in your life that, that were kind of stakes in the ground for you and your relationship with Jesus? What were the moments that you have been encouraged that have shaped your faith? What are the moments that maybe it's even in material blessings. I don't mean that in some TV preacher way, but the things in life that you're like, man, I did not know how I was going to get through, but, but these things have kind of happened in my life. Stories that have shaped your faith. Whatever it is, I guarantee you that in some capacity, whether it was a sermon or a conversation or someone you saw or an encouragement, that the way that your faith has been shaped, the way that you have grown closer to God has been in the impact of other people as broken and as flawed as they are. That we do not just live in some vacuum by ourselves and God just shows up, but God works through the lives of other people. And for the sake of today, it's worth thinking about that the people in your life, that sometimes we pray and say, God, would you help this person? God, would you show up in this person's life? God, would you make this clear to this person that maybe the way that God wants to work in that person's life, to work in that situation is through you. Because just as the Father has sent Jesus, he has sent us. That we're the primary way that God has chosen to work in the world. You're like, that seems like he could have came up with a better idea, but that's the way he came up with it, right? And it's exciting and it's humbling and it helps us to see ourselves different. Being sent, as Jesus is saying in this passage, being sent has to do with the way that we see God and the way that we see ourselves. It's a matter of identity and it's a matter of authority, of identity and of authority. That Matthew 28, before Jesus would ascend and go back to the Father, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority. And he says, therefore, go, I send you. That if we are sent, it has to do with the authority of the one who has sent us. That the one who has created all things says, I want you to go. Be my hands and feet. Be my body in this world. My spirit will lead you. But it has to do with identity. It changes the way that we see ourselves. Being sent isn't just something that we're supposed to do, but it's who we are. That we are sent. The primary way that God wants to work in the world is through you. Verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, this is Jesus praying to the Father, as you sent me, I have sent them into the world. Think about this. We are called to partner with the author of life to propagate his way of living in this upside down world to be a part of his kingdom here and now. Jesus, when he taught us how to pray, we're gonna have a whole conversation about prayer leading up till Easter. When Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says, Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that, that, that kingdom coming to earth that Jesus brought, he wants to partner with us to bring that about. It's not just the then and there in heaven someday, but it's a here and now to bring Jesus's truth, to bring his grace, to bring his way of living in this world that he taught in the gospels here and now. 
What does that look like? How do we do that? It looks like making him known. Look, in the beginning of this last prayer that Jesus prays in John 17, he begins and he says, now this is eternal life. Being in heaven one day where everything's not, that's not what he says. Now this is eternal life. Getting out of here to some distant shore. It's not what he says. He says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That eternal life, that life in life abundant, the life that we so desperately long for, that we see the world thirsting for, is to know the creator of all things. To know the one in whom grace is found, in whom forgiveness is found, in whom peace is found, in whom identity is found, in whom meaning is found in. To know him is to have life in life to the fullest, to have eternal life. Not just the length of it, but the, the weight and the beauty of it. That we are called to make him known. That we are sent to make disciples, to make him known, to make known the character of God. If you think about our culture, man, we, people have such distorted views of who God is and what he is like that we are called to make his character known, his nature, what he has done, his works, his desires, his promises, the hope that's found in Jesus, to make known the invitation that he has offered into relationship. We are sent to do these things. We are sent for these things. And this is so incredibly simple, but we do this in two ways. We do this by showing and by telling. By showing and by telling. I told you it couldn't be any more simple, but I want, I want to mention this. As important as this is, the, the methods, the way in which we do this, it shows up so different. And it's on this pendulum that swings back and forth. What I mean is this. As we look through history, this is true of anything. And it's... I was just talking to Pastor Dan about this the other day. It's so interesting, the pendulum that always swings back and forth. We see this culturally, right? We see a cultural pendulum. We see this throughout history, these pendulums of different societies and what we value and how what is important and what needs to play out and all these, these things are on a pendulum. And sometimes we see this in, the, in, in Christian history throughout the history of the church, that there can be a pendulum between, between faith and works. It's about what you believe. No, it's about what you do, about law. It's about following what we're called to fall. No, 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 it's about grace. It's about what Jesus has done. No, 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 it's about love. We just got to love people like Jesus did. No, 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 it's about rules and kind of being the type of person. All these things, we see the pendulum swing. And sometimes in this conversation of, of whatever you want to call it, evangelism, sharing your faith, whatever, whatever word you want to use for this, there can be this pendulum that swings on back and forth throughout history. And sometimes it swings on this side where we just, just show. The last kind of pendulum swing that way was almost this idea of the social gospel. You know, if we, if we just help the poor, help the needy, let the, the realities of the kingdom play out in a physical way, that's the most important thing. We don't have to actually say anything. We don't actually have to have any conversations, just demonstrate the kingdom. Now, all these things are important, but the pendulum swings to this side. There's an old quote that says, that says uh, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. So that idea that I can just share the gospel by my actions, right? And so that kind of became the social gospel, the kind of pendulum swang on this side. And what happened is people decried legalism, that you're saying we just have to do certain things and be certain things and live in a certain way, and that's going to be the proof of the gospel, and that's going to be the most important thing, and it swings hard that way. And the pendulum always swings back. We see this in our culture now. Politics, sexuality, whatever it is, the pendulum always swings. And what happens is the pendulum swings back this other side to tell. And so there was this era of where we saw ourselves as being sent as just giving disembodied information, knocking on a door, giving a script, right? That we just had to give a spiel, almost like we were salesmen, right? 
You see this with like street preacher types of things. Like that was the mentality, right? And so people would, on the pendulum swings this side, they would decry, it's not just about the information, but you gotta have the relationship and the pendulum always swings. I was talking to this about Pastor Jonathan. He gave this picture of almost, it's almost like a kid who's at show and tell. And on one end of the spectrum, if you were just showing, it's a kid who goes to show and tell with his favorite rock and he just holds up the rock. Doesn't say anything. He just holds up the rock, right? And on the other side of the pendulum, it's almost a kid who comes to show and tell and just talks about the rock and how it's a Ignatius rock and how it's this, is Ignatius a type of rock? I don't know, sedimentary. How he just talks about the rock and the science of the rock and how cool the rock is, but he never actually shows the rock, right? For show and tell, you come, you talk about the rock and you show him the rock and it makes the most sense, right? A better way to look at this, instead of the, the rhythm of our culture, which is a pendulum that always swings back and forth and swings faster and faster, is the way of Jesus, which is living in the tension which we see the life of Jesus where the demonstration of the kingdom and the message of the kingdom come together and we live in this space. I know this seems simple, but it's so easy for us to jump to different sides of the spectrum and not see the way that Jesus lived in the middle. That we see Jesus showing the kingdom. For the sake of today, we'll say it this way. Demonstrating the kingdom through incarnational love. That we cannot just be swing to one side of the, the, the pendulum and just be disembodied information. But we see that the world is desperate for a love that shows up. And I love that this is the heart of Christ. In John 1, this, this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It literally means he pitched his tent in the midst of us, right? We have seen his glory, glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of not just truth, not just grace, but grace and truth. That Jesus demonstrated the kingdom. We see this as he walked on earth, the way he interacted with people, but he showed up in our mess, made his dwelling among us, didn't give us a message from far off, didn't just drop the Bible to us and say, figure it out, but he showed up. In every interaction we see, we see Jesus showing off, showing up in the midst of people's pain and on their turf, in their sin. We see this with Zacchaeus, right? The little man who climbed a tree to try and get a glimpse at Jesus, that Jesus saw him in the midst of a crowd, saw his desperation, said, I'm coming to your house, met with him in the midst of his sin and greed and changed his life. One of the best examples we see of this is when Jesus meets the woman at the well, that he goes off course through a town that he would have been an outsider in for a town that had a very different cultural makeup, that he went through this town, he broke down social barriers, met with this woman at the well in her town, learned her story, knew her story, knew her sexual brokenness, knew her history, knew her sin, and he offered her himself living water that would never leave her thirsty. That we see Jesus meeting Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this religious Pharisee who had these questions about who Jesus was, and Jesus met him in his questions, in the cover of darkness where he felt comfortable to help answer his questions. That Jesus met the tax collectors by going to their house and eating with them, eating with their friends. That we see Jesus, that he meets Martha at her house. Jesus comes to her house and she's stressed and she's anxious and he meets her at her own house in the midst of her stress, in the midst of her anxiety, in the midst of her preoccupation. That Jesus comes and dwells with us, dwells among us. It's an incarnational love. There's an old quote, if you've heard this a thousand times, that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. It's simple, it's cliche, but it's true. It is true. We don't have all the answers to all the Jesus stuff. 
I, it, we do not have the perfect, I cannot give you every single answer that's gonna satisfy every single question you've ever had. But what we do know is that the way in which Jesus came was not from far off, but he showed up incarnationally. The way in which he was sent, not from a distance, but sent into our mess, into our situation, is the way that he has sent us into the messes, into the questions, into the uncomfortableness. Is that a word? Into the situations around us. Not some phantom future perfect situation where I'm going to have this ideal conversation, but in the mess. And I think the best word to summarize what incarnational love looks like is hospitality. I love that hospitality. The word hospitality in the original Greek, I'm not going to say it right, but it's philozenius. It literally means the love of the stranger. If you think about this, the early church Right now, if you think about church, you think about buildings, you think about services, you think about different organizations, is the way that we think about that. And that's unfortunate because the early church, no one thought, oh yeah, the church, the one that meets over there in like Athens, because the early church was underground. It was illegal to do what they were doing for the first 300 years. It was not the primary way in which people understood the church. The primary way in which people understood the church was by the way that the people lived, by their love for one another, their love that showed up, by their love for enemies. That's the way that people knew that you were Christians, that you were part of this church by, by the way that you lived and loved. The way that your love was incarnational. Hospitality. Sometimes we think of hospitality is you got to have a big house, nice food, good cooking. That's counterfeit hospitality. Hospitality is inviting in the stranger, inviting in the person who has questions, inviting in the people that you don't yet know. Hearing stories, empathizing, pursuing understanding. We are so quick in our culture to make objective opinions, to make judge decisions on people, but have a heart of hospitality to invite people in. There's a wonderful story called, or there's a wonderful book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I'd encourage you to listen to it. It's by an author. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. But she was, she was a lesbian. She was a feminist. She, was, she had this, she was writing her paper where she was out to get evangelical Christians because she just did not like what they represented. And in her study, she went to this pastor's house and wanted to interview him and have a conversation with him. And she expected this guy to be closed-minded, to be arrogant, to have certain opinions on things. But what she met was a loving man and his wife who offered her hospitality, who invited in the stranger. And she built this relationship with them where she came to their house for meals week after week. And it changed her life. And in her book, she says this, Hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors takes neighbors and makes them the family of God. I love that, that we are called to demonstrate the gospel, to show incarnational love, love that shows up, that seeks to understand, that listens, that isn't quick to make an opinion, but to regain our saltiness in the midst of a world that is so backwards, so upside down, and so often Christians contribute to that. We are called to something higher to demonstrate the kingdom of God, to be what Paul says are his ambassadors here on earth. We are called to show, but we are also called to tell, to verbally share the message of the kingdom, the message of Jesus. And if we're honest, this is where people, this is where we get a little wiggly. This is where we're like, eh, like we hear words like evangelism and we're like, ah, it brings up certain things in our brains and we may not like it the way it feels or maybe we've had experiences with certain people where we felt like we were just part of a, a sales method or something like that. I think it's worth asking yourself, what is it about 
about talking about Jesus, having conversations about Jesus that just can make us feel wiggly. This isn't all of us, but for some of us it is. In different contexts, for most of us it is. It's worth asking, do you feel like, man, I don't have all the answers, so it feels like I have to like have a theology degree, like we're going to go talk to Richard Dawkins, we have to be able to answer every single question they have. Like, is that, is that why you feel a little wiggly about it? Is it because you don't feel like you have all the answers? Is it because you feel like, man, if I talk about Jesus, it makes it sound like I have all the answers, I got my life together, and I know how broken I am. My, this person knows how broken I am, so it just feels hypocritical. Maybe that's why. Maybe it just feels awkward. Jim Gaffigan is a comedian. He has a joke about, you know, it makes someone uncomfortable to start talking about Jesus. He's Catholic, right? Like, that resonates with some of us because sometimes we just feel awkward. We don't know how to jump into the conversation. Like I said, some of us just had bad experience with the people evangelizing. We've seen it done. You know, I used to go to college at Akron U and I'd walk out of the library sometimes. There'd be these big crowds debating creationism versus evolution or something. And I was like, I'm like, I'm not with this crowd, right? Because it just looks like this argumentative battle. Like there's literally giant signs being held up. Maybe you have struggle, you struggle with this conversation because you're struggling to believe these things at a deep level. That you're like, yes, Jesus, Jesus. But when you go talk about it, you're like, well, what do I really believe? I'm not sure if I really believe these things. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't believe that Jesus is the only way. So like, why do I need to talk to someone else about this? I don't, just do what you need to do to get to heaven. Maybe you don't actually believe Jesus is the way. Barna did a recent uh, study. I thought this was interesting. It said almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. It's almost this feeling of tolerance that we have. They're like, I don't want to share. I don't want to convert you, right? I'm not sure what your reasoning is. And I want you to know, I'm not standing here today as some pro-evangel. Like, I have friends that their gift is evangelism. And I love seeing them and how easy it is for them to talk about Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we are all called to do what Scripture says is the work of the evangelist. To do the work of, of sharing the reality of the gospel with people. I'm at my best explicitly sharing the gospel when my brain is a little melted. I don't know if you've ever watched those videos of people after they got their wisdom teeth taken out. I, pause this video, go YouTube, post wisdom teeth surgery. And it is a bunch of pictures of teenagers in the back of cars saying crazy stuff. Like you just, you're, you're coming off the drugs from your surgery of getting your teeth taken out and you're just saying wonky stuff with your mouth all sounding like it. Now, I, don't, I got my wisdom teeth taken out a couple years ago. And all I remember was talking to the nurse and then I woke up. And as I woke up, I was inviting this nurse to church in the most like explicit way. I'm just like, you should come today to my church. I do the music there and you should come to my church. And I, I'm talking my mouth's all numb from surgery. And I am so comfortably sharing the gospel with this lady, right? Maybe that's the way we all need to share the gospel is just get a little Novocaine and stuff in our brain to loosen us up, right? I want to show you guys a passage that I think is strong. Romans 10. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those, Jesus, I need you. I admit my sin. I, I admit my need for you. I want to follow you. You are the way, truth, and life. Those that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, this goes back to the Old Testament prophets. How beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
people aren't going to hear the reality of sin and the hope of Jesus by you like sweeping their floor or by you fixing their fence. Those things are so incredibly necessary to have relationship with people and to show up and to demonstrate the reality of the gospel of the kingdom. But they're not going to hear unless someone tells them. And I love that. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. We are not sent to make converts, to check boxes, to give a sales pitch, to give a spiel, to check off a box. But we are sent to bring the good news. The message of reconciliation, that God is reconciling the world to himself, that he's desperate to bring people back into his way of living in this world, to make all things new. Acts 1.8, before Jesus goes back to the Father, he says to the disciples that you will be my witnesses. A witness bears witness, proclaims what they have seen and what they have heard. It's different than a salesman, right? A couple years ago, we had some family friends that were in one of those pyramid things, right? Gosh, I'm horrible at sales. I'm the most, I will never be good at sales. But they, my, my friends, they were over and they, they were trying to sell us a vacuum that was $2,000. It was a $2,000 vacuum. It looked like R2-D2. I don't have pets and I have hardwoods. We do not need a vacuum. But it was about an hour spiel about this $2,000 vacuum and why we needed this vacuum. And at the end, I'm like, that's awesome. I do not need this vacuum, right? And sometimes that's the way that we think about being sent. The way that we think about verbally sharing the gospel is like, I got to give them this spiel, this thing that they don't need. I got to convince them that they need it. And we think of that in our brains. But a different piece of technology. Recently, my wife, we were given the gift of an air fryer. And I don't know if you have an air fryer. If you do, you know. You know. And you get an air fryer and you think of all the time that you have wasted slaving over grease in an oven and uh, uh, all the, I don't even know all the different things you cook on because I'm horrible at cooking, but all these different ways that we cook, that was such a pain in the butt. My wife got this air fryer and she's like, Aiden, this is the best thing I've ever had. I think we would give up one of our kids if we could keep the air fryer. The air fryer is wonderful. We tell everybody about the air fryer. We're like, do you have one? You need one. You need to get an air fryer. You put it in and it magically makes your pizza taste good. It magically makes sausages not dry. It magically reheats your food to taste like you just got it from the restaurant. You need an air fryer. We bear witness to the wonder of this air fryer. We have the feet that bring good news about the air fryer. It's a very different thing trying to sell somebody versus bearing witness to the good news of what we've encountered. Not trying to close a deal, but bearing witness to these things is what we are sent to do. I want to end with this. Peter says this. Peter says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I just, I just want to close this way. This is practical. This is simple for some of you. I'm not, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but I'm just reminding us of who we are, the authority of the one who had sent us, and what our identity is, is we are here. We are here trying to figure out who we are, what are we supposed to do, what's our calling in life. And Jesus makes it very clear that we are sent. Aliens and strangers, foreigners here on this earth, ambassadors of the good news of the gospel of the king who has came to, to reconcile the world to himself, to make all things right. He says, let's go, let's do this thing. We are so distracted with Netflix and iPhones and all this different stuff. I'm distracted that we forget what we have been called to do. And I just want to look at this passage backwards, then we're going to pray. The posture, the posture of which we are called to do this is not one of arrogance, not one of pride, not one that says, we got the right answers and you're doing it wrong. It says, but do this with gentleness and respect. 
I think today's day and age, we can get a lot of mileage out of gentleness and respect. A lot of mileage out of just being people that are gentle and respectful. That our conversations are seasoned with salt. Paul, Paul the Apostle Paul, in the, in the famous love passage, love is patient, love is kind, he says, I can speak of the tongues of men and angels. I can have all the wisdom in the world, but if I do not have love, then I sound like a clanging cymbal. For the sake of today, I brought a clanging cymbal. That if we are sent, and if we are not clothed in love, and bear gentleness and respect as our posture, that, my friends, is what we sound like. That is what we sound like, and too often that the church has lost its salt, and so that's what we sound like. We sound like a clanging symbol, like the rest of the clanging symbols in our, and the clanging symbols of the news, and the clanging symbols of social media, and the clanging symbols of, of our opinions, and the clanging symbols of all these different things, that when we don't have love, when we don't have the good news, that we just sound like another symbol clanging. But Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect. It says this, always be prepared, work backwards, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that you have. Do you have hope in Jesus? Why? No one can argue with your story. I think one of the most powerful tools, and I, I, I have friends that are so good at this, I'm like, man, I long to be as good at this as you guys are, is asking questions. When we, when we have conversations with people in our lives, with people that we have been sent, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's coworkers, whether it's a restaurant that we go to every day, whatever it is, it's just asking questions. Sometimes we get so, I gotta, like, I gotta make the sale, I gotta say something about Jesus, I gotta throw Jesus in here somewhere, like it doesn't, they're asking questions. And I tell you this, you ask question, enough questions to someone, they'll ask, well, what about you? What about you? And that's where we're prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. I have an old friend that I, I talked to. They, they were so inquisitive about faith and they would ask lots of questions about faith and what I believe and they'd hear other people talk about their faith and so they'd always ask me questions. And growing up, sometimes you have like this, this sense that you gotta defend Jesus. You gotta give him a good answer like you're in some kind of boxing video game. And so I would always give answers to this person that I thought were pretty good answers. Well, Tim Keller says this in the C.S. Lewis book in First John and I'd always give answers. They were never satisfied with my answers. I would give them an awesome answer. I'm like, oh, this one. They're going to bow down on their knees and give their life to Jesus in this van. And I'd give them an answer and they would say, hmm, never impressed. One day I'm talking to my friend and they tell me about something that their, their girlfriend believes and what they believe about God. And I, I was ready with an answer. I'm like, well, I'll tell you why they're wrong, Right. And instead of giving, and if you, if you know me, I've shared this story. And instead of giving this person an answer, all I simply said was I said, what do you think? This person was saying what their wife believed about God and, their, and, and her view of God and all these different things, or their girlfriend. And I said, oh, so what do you think? And in one question, this person unpacked their heart of where they're at with God, what they think about God, how they think God inter- inter- interacts with us, how they think you get to heaven, in one question. And they said, what do you think? And you're like, this is low-hanging fruit. This is a softball coming right down over the plate. Questions will get us so much farther. And questions help us to understand people's story. We all, we all have pain. We are all messed up. We all have weird reasons for the things that we believe. And asking questions helps us to get underneath to understand people, to understand where we're coming from, to understand the struggles, to understand the questions about God, to understand where we're at with God. Questions get us there. 
It's a wonderful book. If you're looking for a resource, write it down called Questioning Evangelism. Awesome practical book. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is always asking questions. <laughs> a rich young ruler comes up, good teacher, what must I do to get into heaven? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Like it's like a Jewish thing to always ask questions, right? We always see Jesus asking questions. I want to end with this. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This, this all comes down, do, do you love Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I'm not saying, did you pray a prayer? Do you mentally assent to uh, like the Apostles' Creed or something? I'm not saying, do you agree with some theology about Jesus? Yeah, he lived, yes, he... But do you know Jesus? Do you walk with Jesus? Do you sound like Jesus, smell like Jesus? Do you, do you talk like Jesus? Do you love him? Do you have hope in Jesus? Do you turn to Jesus when you are stressed? Do you trust that Jesus meets you in the midst of your doubts, even when we don't have all the answers? That you, do you love Jesus? Because the reality is that we talk about what we love. We talk about what we love. This is a picture of my boys. This is Camden and this is Colby. And I want to tell you this, if, if, if you're, I, not so, three years ago, I didn't have kids. And a lot of people in my life had kids. If you're, if you don't have kids, you like don't care about other people's kids, right? Like people would show me pictures of their kids and I'm like, that's cool. That's a baby. Like I could care less, right? I love my friends. I love them, but I just don't care, right? I, I have these boys and like my phone is full of pictures with them. And there are so many situations. It just happens. Where you're talking to someone, you're like, oh, let me show you a picture of my kid. And I know that that person doesn't care about my picture of my kid because I was that person not long ago, but I don't care. Because I think they're cute and I want to talk about them. Why? Because we talk about the things that we love. And sometimes I wonder if we feel like we are trying to talk about something that we don't really love. Peter says to revere Christ as Lord. Everything starts here with who Jesus is. Is, is he the good shepherd to you? Is the gospel good news to you that has saved you? Has Jesus changed your perspective on yourself and on the world? Do you love Jesus? Do you, I would encourage you, as we are sent, as we go from this conversation, as we head into this next season of wherever the Lord is leading, that we have to see ourselves under the authority of Jesus as ones who are sent, but where we need to start. Maybe this is the one takeaway for you today is to be with Jesus. Just to, open, to read the Gospels, to read, the, read a chapter of the Gospels a day. To just be enamored with the person of Jesus, the God who showed up as a Jewish carpenter and taught wild things about the kingdom, about what life really looks like under the rule and reign of God. And to fall in love with Jesus again. Not what people have said about Jesus, not, not the, the church, but to fall in love with Jesus. What is next for you? What is next? Where is it that you are saying from here on out, from this point on? Because I believe that this disruption that we are going through, that Jesus wants to use in ways that are going to shape the church in ways that we don't even see right now. So Jesus, I pray that you would help us in these things as we go into whatever is next, that we would see ourselves as sent that we wouldn't just manage busyness, that we wouldn't just go with the flow, 
that we wouldn't be centered on pride in ourselves, that we wouldn't bow to the kingdoms of this world and ideologies of this world and entertainment of this world. But Jesus, as we go through this disruption that has hit us all in very different ways, that we would say in our hearts from this point on that we'd make ourselves available to you, Jesus. We need your help in this thing. We pray that your spirit would lead us into all truth, that we may know you in a unique way that we have not not understood, not communed with you previously, that you'd reveal yourself to us in a unique way as we follow you into what is next. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.